Welcome to the St. Patrick Catholic Community Podcast in Scottsdale, Arizona. We are Christian Disciples in Mission. So some of you heard me at Masses this past weekend and decided to come again this morning. Thank you for the vote of confidence. I really appreciate that. Really kind of you and everything. All right, let's jump right in to the important stuff and get the important stuff out of the way right away. Who in here is afraid of heights? Wave at me. Yeah. Okay. Spiders. Okay. Thank you. Clowns. <laughs> Spider clowns. <laughs> like everybody's looking around like one's going to jump out. No, I'm just taking a... So uh, anybody in here afraid of the dark? Okay, your children. That's okay. Uh, being rejected by everyone who's ever loved you? Anyone? Yeah. Okay, you're my people. Hi, everybody. <laughs> you know, Jerry Seinfeld once said that most studies indicate that the number one fear is public speaking. Number two is death. <laughs> death is second. That means for the average person at a funeral, it's better to be in the casket than giving the eulogy. Right? Fear. Fear is a funny thing, yeah. but it's motivating. Okay, so I want you to get in the time machine right now. For some of you, you're going to have to twist the knob a little farther than others, but I want you to think of what is one irrational fear that you had as a teenager? Yeah, get in the Wayback Machine. What is the irrational fear that you had as a teenager? Somebody that you asked to the homecoming dance will pretend they already have a date. Oh, you're going with Kyle? That's cool. I don't mind. Do you ever have that dream where... You were supposed to have been going to a class all semester, but then you didn't and you don't know where the room is. Yeah, yeah for me, that wasn't a dream. That was called reality, okay? I cut class like every day, and my irrational fear was that I'd end up working at a church. No, my irrational, my irrational fear was that the, the thing that they called the permanent record was actually real. Right? Because I got into all kinds of shenaniganery when uh, I was in high school. You know, like shenaniganery, never heard that word before, but you're going to use it. Okay? I, I used to get in all kinds of, of weird trouble, and, and the main thing that I did was, was cut class every single day. And my fear was that that was going to follow me all through my adulthood. The fear that I should have had was called cumulative GPA. <laughs> I didn't even know that was a thing. I, I thought I was going to get into Harvard based off a strong second semester in my senior year. I'm like, yeah, they're going to want this. Yeah. You know, some of those things that we're afraid of, like the permanent record or, or spiders or whatever it is, you know, experience is the cradle of wisdom. Now that I have a little bit more experience from my high school days, I have the wisdom to know that the permanent record was just something that they hung over my head to try to keep me in line. I think most of our fears come from not truly understanding something. Right? 
and maybe not having control over it. If you're a parent, you understand this because this describes a newborn child. You don't understand it, and you learn very quickly that you have little control over what it does. So now, I want us to get back in the way back machine. Get back in the time machine, and we're going way far back. We're going to try to root out some of the sources of the fear that we have in life. We are going all the way back to the cave. <laughs> we're all cave people now. There's a, there's a preacher named Rob Bell, and he used to talk about this a lot. So I'm, I'm going to borrow, I mean, steal everything that he says. We are all now cave people. Think about the world that surrounds us. I mean, modern Brian is mystified when I turn on the faucet and water comes out. That is magic to me. Think about the world that surrounds cave people. Here are the plants that grow. We need these plants for the food that we depend on. The herd is coming by. The guys who are faster than me are going to go out there and try to hunt the herd, but we have to understand when they're going to be there when we can find the things that we need for life. And if the rain doesn't fall, if the sun doesn't shine in a particular way, and look at the sun. The sun is out this morning, people. You remember what it looked like, yes, for the sun. We have no control over that. Right? If the sun doesn't shine in a particular way, if the rain doesn't fall, the crops wither up and die, and we have a, a famine. All of these things are controlled by forces outside of our control. Something makes the sun come out. Something makes the rain fall. And these forces, let's call them gods, we want them to know that we know that they exist. We want to have a relationship with you so that the rain falls and our crops grow. But sometimes we have a great crop and we want to communicate to these forces, these gods, that we are grateful for the things that we have that sustain our life, that are outside of our control. And so we build an altar because where are all the forces? They're up. The forces of good come from up, right? The sun, the rain. So we build an altar, and we have a sacrifice. We bring our crops, we bring our animals, and we say to these forces, we are grateful for the things that we have that sustain our life. So we have a great crop, so should we have a big sacrifice or a small sacrifice? A big sacrifice! Yes, we don't want to risk offending the gods. Right? But the next year, there's a famine. There's a fire. There's a flood. There's a famine fire flood. And it's terrible. And we have very little. Obviously, we have done something to offend the forces. So, should we have a small sacrifice or a big sacrifice? big sacrifice to show these forces that we are sorry. 
So whether we have a great year or whether we have a terrible year, the sacrifice must get bigger and bigger and bigger because the gods are angry and they demand from us. Eventually, we have to start sacrificing things to these angry and demanding gods that are even more valuable than crops, more valuable than animals. What is the most valuable thing that we humans have? Human life. And of course, the most precious form of that human life is our children. In cultures all over the world, we find altars where human sacrifices have taken place to try to appease these angry gods. There was a man named Abraham. And God spoke to Abraham. And what does God say? Sacrifice to me your son, Isaac born in great difficulty, who is very precious to you. Abraham does not like this, but he does it. He understands it. This is who the gods are. The gods reflect the very worst of our human nature. The gods are jealous. The gods are petty. The gods are an episode of guiding light, right? My mom made me watch Guiding Light when I was a kid. I know all about the Spaldings and the Lewises and the oil industry and people who disappear and come back out of nowhere. These are the gods, and Abraham understands that. But what happens? First, Isaac has to bear insult with injury and carry the wood up the mountain himself, right? Oh, thanks, Dad. But what happens is we get a whole new understanding of who God is. A seismic shift happens at this point. God stops him and says, do not touch a hair on his head. This is not who I am. If you feel like you need to make a sacrifice to me, there is a ram with its horns caught in the thicket. Take that and sacrifice it to me. In an instant, a seismic shift happens in our understanding of the nature of God. God is not one who demands, God provides. God provides. This is the entire arc of Scripture. God provides. Sometimes we can look back at the Levitical law of the ancient Jews and dismiss it as formulaic or antiquated. But it was really revolutionary. You can know where you stand with God. Talk about addressing a major source of fear. Follow that arc of scripture all along. God provides. As a matter of fact, 
It's not your son, Abraham, that will be sacrificed to make my peace with you. It's mine. It's my very self. And through this sacrifice, Jesus Christ conquers death itself, the number two fear, <laughs> and throws open the gates of eternity. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Have faith in God. Have faith also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If there were not, would I say that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back again and take you to myself, so that where I am, you also may be. Where I'm going, you know the way. But Thomas said, Master, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. This perspective of understanding God as one who provides helps us understand rootedness. And that's really the crux of what I'm talking about today. The plant knows where to send its roots where it will be provided for. We have Lake St. Cannon in our backyard right now. <laughs> All of those plants are jumping for joy because that, that life-giving water is soaking into their roots. Not only do those roots provide for the plant, they also stabilize the soil around it. Think about what happens in California sometimes after the wildfires come through as if the wildfire is not devastation enough. What happens when the rains come? All those plants and roots have been destroyed and the roots are no longer stabilizing the ground around them and the waters come and wash the land away. Are we rooted as Christians? because our culture could use a little bit of rootedness from us. Think about the cultural landslides that we experience. It's up to us to be rooted in God's love, to hold the soil of the culture around us. Now, I may be somewhat biased, but I think there's a major societal benefit to having people rooted in a God who provides. What does it mean to be rooted? The reign of God is like a puzzle. You ever get one of those 5,000 billion bazillion piece jigsaw puzzles? Yeah, nothing says first world problems like I have too much time on my hands than getting a 5,000 piece puzzle of M&Ms. <laughs> <coughs> Most of the world is scrambling for existence, but no, I've got to find out where all these m and pieces are. So you dump, out the, you dump out the box, and you've got that picture in there. That's, the, that's your guide. That's, that's the picture that God intends. In the reign of God, each of us is like one of those puzzle pieces. Right? 
So first you find the edge. <laughs> then you curse because you're sure the manufacturer did not put all the pieces in, and we do that with God too. God, you haven't given enough, uh, enough raw material to build up this kingdom that you keep talking about. But as each puzzle piece, which, which are all unique, by the way, finds its place, the picture begins to become more clear. The reign of God, what God intends. But as we know, as the puzzle goes along, the more pieces that find their place, it makes it easier to do what? All of those other pieces to find their place too. This is the gift that we give to culture when we are rooted in Jesus Christ. It makes everyone around us better. It makes everyone around us understand their true identity as children of God a little bit more clear. But maybe I'm not sure how to find my place. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Trust. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will find their place. You might not be an edge piece. You might not get to go out right away and find where you're supposed to land. But if you hunger and if you thirst for righteousness and justice, then you'll find your place. Chasing surface-level desires will always leave us wanting more. There's only one master who is going to set us free. So those of us who are fixated on comfort or wealth or power, we're always going to be unsatisfied. It's going to be hard for us to find our place. We're going to be unsatisfied, and not that kind of unsatisfied that's the motivating kind, the kind rather the kind that leads to emptiness and isolation. Who's the master that we're serving? The God who provides or the gods who demand? Oh, it's true we're not trying to be connected to the water god or the fire god or the earth god anymore. We call them by different names. Status. Popularity. Wealth. Those gods will call you back to the altar time and time again, and the demands of a sacrifice will become greater and greater, and you will sell yourself into slavery if you follow those gods. There is only one master who is going to set us free. So what's a good biblical example of all of this? The woman at the well. Jesus encounters this woman at the well. First off, you know he's on the right track, Jesus, because his uh, apostles can't believe he's talking to her. He's not interested in being popular or doing the culturally correct thing. She's at the well in the middle of the day. That's not when you go to the well. She's something of an outcast. Jesus tells her what? Hey, go get your husband. We'll talk about some things. What's her answer? I ain't got one, buddy. 
And Jesus says, you're, you, technically, you're right. Because you've had five husbands, and the man you're with now is not your husband. So what you've said to me is true. And uh, she's impressed by his acumen and opens up to him a little bit. All right? Jesus says to her, you keep drawing water from this well time and time again, but you keep getting thirsty. What's up with that? I can give you life-giving water. And if you drink the water I give, you'll never be thirsty again. You can keep serving the gods that you're serving, and they'll keep demanding from you, and you'll keep getting thirsty time and time again. Or you can drink of the life-giving water that I give and never thirst again. What was the woman's deepest desire? To be loved. What was she settling for? Surface-level relationships that come and go. She had a desire for relationship but she settled for the angry gods instead of going deep in the well. Going deep in the well and drawing out the life-giving water that Jesus offers to her. So I've become convinced that this is the absolute key understanding of being rooted in God. If you take one thing away from this morning's talk, let it be this. Your deepest desire and God's will for your life fit. Your deepest desire and God's will for your life fit. So what was it that woman was truly after? To be known and to know someone. To love deeply. In the woman at the well, we see the attractiveness of Christ versus the cultural God of happiness on full display. Jesus lives life to such an extent that human life has become synonymous with Jesus. So living a life in service to the poor and outcasts of society, even to the point of death, is attractive. Unconditional love and faithfulness to God is attractive. Holiness is attractive. One time we had Matthew Kelly come uh, speak to our youth group when I was a youth minister, and he, uh, I, had a, I had a copy of his book, Rediscovering Catholicism, and we were just sitting in the courtyard talking, and he's like, uh, do you want me to sign that book for you? I'm like, that's odd, I didn't ask, right? <laughs> okay, yeah, sure, sign the book. <coughs> I think he wanted to sign the book because he wrote a little note to me in it. And he just said, Brian, there's nothing more attractive than holiness. The holiness of Jesus is attractive. Not only are they attractive, but for us Christians, they're life. So what I find interesting is that our cultural God of happiness doesn't factor much into the life of Christ. The gospel downplays the entirety of the cult of self-centeredness. The gospel of life doesn't include material satisfaction. 
It doesn't include psychological soothing or even spiritual needs. How can it be that so many Christians believe in a therapeutic God, but then are attracted to the gospel Jesus? I believe that this disconnect is the source of great longing experienced by many Christians, including myself. Do you ever feel like you're just waiting for your life to start? Quite honestly. Do you ever feel unfulfilled? Do you ever feel like there's more to life than you're living? Are the things that you buy, or the promotions that you get, or the neighborhoods that you move into, never enough? If I keep pretending that God just wants me to be happy, then the answers will always be yes. God doesn't want me to be happy. It's shocking to some people. If you ask some people about their relationship with God and what God wants for them, it's, well, God just wants me to be happy. God wants me to live. And there's a difference. There's a real difference. So in our culture, this is the major battle being waged. And I think we lose this battle when we substitute our deep rootedness in God for fixation. Because there's a big difference between being rooted and being fixated. I think deep down, we understand when we're rooted that things don't make us happy. Anybody have that person in their life who always seems to have that new thing they're suddenly all about? Yeah. Right? Their social media posts turn on a dime. And everything is about this new thing that they have discovered that they are suddenly all about. Well, I'm very glad that you're happy with your new multi-level marketing scheme. I'm sorry that I'm not as excited about it as you are. <laughs> One, it's annoying. Two, it usually fizzles out. And then they'll be on to the next thing. See, the universe of fixation revolves around a gravitational center of consumerism. And there are forces that work upon our consumerist impulses, and I am the worst at consumerist impulses, that don't align with the reign of God. That little voice that convinces you that it's a good idea to buy an entire case of Cadbury cream eggs <laughs> is not the same little voice that tells you to serve the poor. <laughs> Do you know that? There are competing messages in your head. They're not all conscience. <laughs> yeah. I, I fall victim to that all the time. But to be rooted is to gain a foothold in the source of life. Okay. Think about that tree that's rooted. Then when the winds come, the branches bend so they don't break. Think about the tree that's rooted. It can gather the air that swirls around it. It can synthesize the sunlight into life. So the well-rooted Christian and the well-rooted Christian family is not called to sever itself from contemporary culture. Instead, we are called to be rooted in love and bring our culture into fruitfulness.
since we're being rooted, let's talk about trees. <laughs> I like trees. Everybody likes trees. Raise your hand if you don't like trees. <laughs> oh, good, there's no awful people in here. We're lucky enough to have one of those trees in our front yard that actually changes color once a year <laughs> for like 14 seconds and then it drops all its leaves. Yeah. Think about all the beautiful things about a tree. You know, the colors, the leaves. But there's a whole nother level of usefulness of this tree. It provides shade. It provides homes for animals. Hey, you can cut it down if you want to, make it planks and build a house. On another level, these are air scrubbers, right? They produce oxygen that we all breathe. The colors are, are, are amazing. In Scottsdale, you need an act of God to cut down a tree. <laughs> Did you know that? So, so we're like, we're doing construction here at St. Patrick, and they, they tag all of the trees, and you're not even allowed to take them down. You have to move them someplace else. And this is how much we value trees. All of these things are true about trees, right? They have beautiful colors. They make oxygen. You know who doesn't know this about trees? Trees. They don't know. They have no concept of color, much less that their colors are beautiful. They have no idea that they're providing a home for others. They have no idea that they scrub the air and create the air that we breathe. Does that make, the, the fact that the trees don't know this, does that make it any less true? No. It's true. How must God look at us? How must God look at us? When I'm down on myself, when I see myself as unlovable, unredeemable, I see myself as pointless, how must God look at us? How much more must God understand us than we understand ourselves? Now, if we're to believe Scripture, God, knowing and understanding all of this about us, chooses to love us unconditionally and beyond limit. So whose judgment will I accept when I'm feeling worthless? That judgment's above my pay grade. God knows me. God loves me. God will be the one to determine my ultimate worth. And this is good news for me because I can't be trusted to put on matching socks in the morning, much less determine something like my ultimate worth. This is good news for those of us who live in the real world. Because there's a perception, I think, tell me and, and, and nod in agreement if, if you think there's this perception too sometimes, that there are real Catholics out there. Right? They all have eight kids and they're all named after saints. They come singing down the stairs after they pray their morning rosary and prepare for their homeschool sessions, like the Von Trapp children. Right? You ever get that perception that there's real Catholics out there and it's not me? <laughs> that's, 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 that model is good for some, but it's not where I'm at. I don't understand that culture. I understand Santa Claus and Notre Dame football. Right? That's my path to holiness, and they'll remain so so long as they assist me in keeping God at the center. Otherwise, it's not rootedness, but it's what? It's fixation. But we find God in the little things. 
even in the massive swirling galaxy of not understanding the mystery of God, we're presented with opportunities for little yeses. And these little yeses lead to glimpsing God's abundant life. So it's okay if you don't know everything. You're a tree, right? God knows. God gives us opportunities to say little yeses. Because you never really know what you're saying yes to in life, so you can be governed by fear of not knowing, or you can take the little steps that God gives you. And think about if you went to college and you chose a major, and then you chose another one, and then you chose another one. I have a science degree. I'm here talking to you about Jesus. How does that work out? Right? You don't know where the little yeses are going to lead you. When you accept a job and move across the country, how many of you landed here in Arizona because of work? You come from someplace much colder, right? You didn't know what you were getting into, did you? You didn't think it would snow here, too. <laughs> How many of you are a little bitter right now? <laughs> I left all that behind. <laughs> I know my wife is like, she, she said, I will never move back to the Midwest. Well, it just came here. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's fine. When you enter into that relationship of marriage, you say yes. A lot of times there's, there's plenty of witnesses to it. <laughs> you know, for, for a lot of people, it's on video. You know, you can't go back and... But you don't know what a relationship looks like. Even though you vow to be in it for life, right, there are twists and turns along the way that you can never really predict. Children. Ha! You, you say yes to children. And it's heartbreaking and life-giving. And all of those things, it's, it's the, the entire range of emotions you can have with a child in 14 seconds, right? Look how handsome I was. Ha <laughs> ha! Little yeses. I used to be a youth minister, and um, I got into this rut of thinking that everything about ministry was what they were paying me to do. Look at all you nice people. Nobody's paying you to be here this morning. I don't know if you knew that or not. <laughs> Sorry. You know. All right, double your salary. Go ahead. Okay. But I realized that every time I showed up at church, it was for one of my official duties as a youth minister. And so I asked God for an opportunity to give a little bit more of myself. So there were some people uh, through a program called the Jaywalking Program, which was like the teen version of Just Faith. They were bringing teens to uh, Maggie's Place house. So Maggie's Place, if you're not familiar with the organization, they run homes of hospitality for pregnant women who might be homeless or in bad abusive situations, uh, need a place of safety, right? And, uh, and they're, they're full bore in operation in our community today, and they're a great organization, Maggie's Place. And so their staff members live in homes with expectant moms, and they get all the moms uh, their counseling, their, their prenatal care, 
educational opportunities, job counseling, all that good stuff. And then they assist through the birthing process, and then the mom and baby live in the house for a time after the birth. Is that not the most amazing pro-life ministry you've ever heard of? If you're looking for a place to throw your time and money at, Maggie's Place, I, I highly recommend. So I decided to go along with these teens who were going to the Michael house, which is one of the Maggie's Place houses. They would do like scrapbooking. Okay, like I'm kind of crafty, but not anything that anybody's going to want to save forever. <laughs> or they would, we got the onesies with like the puff paint and you, you write little funny things on a onesie for the, for the babies. Um, not so much into that. But so, so I go with these kids, and we're visiting with the moms. And the director general of the house, uh, named Mary, I saw her, and I was immediately interested. Okay? So I gave her my phone number, and I said, you know, if you guys need anything, any kind of help around the house, uh, let me know, and I can come over and help out. Well, a month goes by, and I get no phone call. I say, well, I made a really great impression there. Yeah, really nailed it. Go back to the house, and I say, hey, you never called me for anything. Well, Mary, being a good director of the house, gave my number to the volunteer director. She didn't pick up that I was hitting on her, right? She's like, oh, yeah, well, I guess we didn't need anything. <laughs> okay. Prince Charming over here can't get a phone call right? So I go back, go back, and then um, eventually I get this call that their washing machine is on the fritz. They need help with the washing machine. Can you do something to help? Well, yeah, of course I can. Of course I can. Let me Google washing machine fixes from, yes, I, I invented the washing machine. I don't know if you knew that or not, but my maiden name is Whirlpool. I don't, okay. <laughs> like, I was over there in a half an hour pretending like I could do something with the washing machine. <laughs> I, I don't know. Anyway, one thing leads to another and she married me, right? <laughs> so it's, it, it's funny. Now she, gets to, now she gets to understand every day how not handy I am around the house, <laughs> right? Um, when people ask Mary how she met her husband, she says, uh, he showed up on my doorstep. <laughs> I thought that was cute, right? But the, the point of all of this is that it was a little yes that I responded to, right? I just asked God for an opportunity to give a little bit more of myself. And God says, I'll give you the opportunity to give all of yourself. You don't have to know everything. You're a tree. Just respond to the little yeses. And the little yeses, they become big yeses. Deciding to have children. Look at those cute kids right there. <laughs> Deciding to have children. It's another little yes. We decided we were open to accepting children into our family. Right? Uh, so we went to Hawaii instead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I recommend that. If you're, if you're like newly married and you're considering having children, great. Go to Hawaii. <laughs> So that, that's us at a luau. Uh, we went, when we went to Hawaii, we knew that we were pregnant, but nobody else did, right? Except for the couple that I told at the luau when Mary left the table for a few minutes. <laughs> I was so excited, right? But, um, you know, we're just ready to embark in this, this, new, this new thing in life, and I was so excited. Um, 
And then, about 20 weeks in, and for you, those of you keeping score at home, that's halfway through the pregnancy, we had our first ultrasound. Right? You know, they listen for a fetal heartbeat before that, but once they find one, they stop listening. We didn't know until halfway through the pregnancy that there were two kids in there and not just one. <laughs> as soon as the probe hit the skin, it looked like a train wreck in there. There were body parts all over the place. This is probably a, a joke in poor taste, but I don't care. Like, I thought to myself, we are either giving birth to a Hindu god, or there is more than one child in there. There's arms and, you know. I just laughed. My reaction to seeing two kids in there, two daughters, who are over there right now. Like, they're over, no, no you can't see them. They're in the, they're in the track. I just realized that when I pointed, everybody's like, what are they, playing in the baptismal font? Yeah, I let my children play around water unsupervised, and that's what I do. Uh, man, I just laughed. You don't know what, what God has in store for you when you say little yeses, but guess what? God knows what God has in store. Back to the luau. <laughs> do you see anything else in that picture? There are two little palm trees hanging out in the background together. I didn't, I didn't really realize that until I was looking back at these, these pictures. And, okay, I don't believe in the God of coincidences. I just think that's beautiful. And it's just it's such a, a, a good reminder of that I don't know where the road is going when I say yes to God. But if I'm rooted in his love, I'm going to be all right. And God knows. God knows what we say yes to. And God's not going to give us something to say yes to that doesn't lead us closer to his own heart. Right? Here's the day they were born. <laughs> the first thing they did was hold hands together. Yeah. I, we were in the recovery room. It was, it was terrifying, by the way. Everybody talks about the birth of their children like there are uh, fairies and elves around and you know, the ah, choirs of heavenly angels. No, it was terrifying because of the way they were situated, right? We, you know, a natural birth was not an option for us. Like back in the cave, we get back in the Wayback Machine, nobody's coming out of that birth well, right? They put me in a room by myself while they're prepping Mary for surgery. <laughs> I'm just sitting there contemplating life. How am I going to raise these kids? Is everything going to be okay? And then they bring me in. Uh, they start the operation. It's over in like an instant. I don't know if you knew that, but it's, it's, it happens quickly. Our kids are born one minute apart. And, uh, and then they bring them out, and they're crying. And my poor wife, Mary, is just shaking because she's so cold. And it's just like four seconds ago, I had no responsibilities really in this life and now I'm in it for the long haul and I'm just worried I'm just worried about everything and then I hear a collective oh from every nurse and doctor and assistant in the room because this is what they were doing 
on the little warming table. They had grabbed each other's hands. Right? <laughs> okay. Like, all right. I know there's a lot of uncertainty, but if I can remain rooted in God, this is something that I can do. Why? Because God doesn't demand. God provides. That's us. There we are. Cuties, right? So the deepest desire of your heart and God's will, they fit. How are you trying to satisfy that? What drives you as an individual? What drives you as a family? Does it help you deepen relationships of love? Or does it stress them? What's the honest assessment there? Life is so precious. So precious. And we have to understand that sometimes, isn't it true that we give a lot of energy to things that just don't matter? Right? So every day, I, I struggle with it. I, I, I have a hard time. I do. It's not easy for me to be a good husband. It's not easy for me to be a good dad. Sometimes I, I, um, I give energy to a lot of like negative thinking or, or I get, uh, I'm moody. I'm moody. I get cranky. I feed the beast. I feed the angry gods. They always demand more and demand more and demand more. I give a lot of energy to things that ultimately, they just don't matter. Tell me if anybody in here recognizes this place. I'd be surprised if you did. <laughs> Way out west, in a beautiful western town called Tonopah, <laughs> you, you recognize it if you've ever made that drive to California down I-10. Okay? Basically, out where the nuclear plant is, there's a town called Tonopah. I used to be a firefighter. That was my first career. I was a firefighter in a little place out near Tonopah. And we weren't real busy, believe it or not. We got like one call a shift. Yeah, yeah I was really working my tail off. I was a hero. It was great. Um, they were really interesting calls, really interesting people, but we also had a lot of time on our hands. So sometimes we would take the fire truck and go to a little diner called Tonopah Joe's. So that's, that's Tonopah Joe's. Joe's. Joe passed away. It was, it was a while ago. He, uh, he got sick and he died. But back in the heyday, there was always people at Tonopah Joe's. And we used to go there a lot. We knew all the people. I was in Tonopah Joe's the day that Dale Earnhardt had his accident and passed away on the NASCAR track. That was a national day of mourning in Tonopah. Let me tell you, everybody was down. Okay. So, the reason I bring this up is because we knew all the people there. Fast forward a, a few weeks, right? I, I was having a bad day. For no particular reason. You ever have a day like that? You wake up and you're like, I'm not having it today. Everything's awful today. I got no reason for everything to be awful today. But everything is. And uh, I, ad I adopt the victim mentality, right? Like, oh, I got it so bad. 
that everybody else, everybody else has to hear about how I'm unhappy, right? Like that's gonna make me feel better if I make everybody else miserable also, and just lower that bar. We get our one call for the shift. It's an accident out on I-10. Let me just tell you, always wear your seatbelt, okay? I have never cut a dead body out of a seatbelt. Always wear your seatbelt. The person in this accident had not worn her seatbelt. Okay? Car had tumbled a lot of times. She was ejected from the car. And she landed face down out in the desert, and that's where she stayed. Okay? So we get on scene, and sometimes you got on scene and you just realized that there was nothing that you can do but you try anyway. So I'm going through my checklist and I'm working on things and from out of the wreckage comes this little dog and limps over to the victim and curls up next to her. Okay? Then as we're working on things, her cell phone begins to ring. Somebody's expecting her, and she's not home yet, right? Because it's not one of those, oh, you, you get a phone call, and then it kept ringing. It kept ringing. And you know this person on the other end of the line is starting to think the worst. Because don't, don't you, you go there mentally, right? You can't get a hold of somebody for five minutes. And, and already they've, they've been abducted by aliens and, it's, and everything's over, right? But for that other person on the end of the line, the worst was true. They just didn't know it yet. I turn over the victim. She's our server from Tonopah Joe's, right? Was I having a bad day? Right? I wasn't. Don't give one second of this life away. Life is so precious. Relationships are beyond value. To be rooted in God's love is to celebrate, to defend, to honor every human life the way that we choose to live every single day. Don't give one second away to anger, to pettiness. Don't give one second away to trying to chase wealth or status. Life is about these relationships of love that we have. All right, so I got to bring this thing in for a landing. Right? In trying to be rooted in God's love, I'd like us to consider this perspective. Okay? The day that the divine spark of life entered us is the day we won the lottery. A PhD named Ali Binazer worked out the odds that you would be born. What are the odds that you would be born? 
Your dad meets your mom. Now, in actuality, your dad could have met 200,000 women, 200 million, excuse me, women at, the, at that time, but over 25 years, let's say probably around 10,000, right? So the odds of your mom and your dad meeting, let's just put it at 1 in 20,000. But we know how tricky love can be. There's a 1 in 10 chance that they talk to each other. 1 in 10 chance that they get a second date. For me, it was more like 1 in 50. 1 in 10 that they date for a while. And it's about a coin toss if they get married that they'll have kids. So all of that is about 1 in 2,000. So far, the combined odds of you being here are 1 in 40 million, which is about the population of the state of California. Now things get interesting. So we all make a lot of reproductive cells, all of which are genetically unique. In the lifetime of an average female, that's about 100,000. Males were a little bit busier, four trillion or so, according to my notes. Now we're up to one in 400 quadrillion. Okay, that's approximately the volume of, in cubic meters of the Atlantic Ocean but we're just getting started. Your existence here presupposes another supremely unlikely yet utterly undeniable chain of events. Every one of your ancestors lived to reproductive age, all the way to the dawn of life. Next page. Now we're talking uh, about one in 10 to the 45,000th power. That's 10 with 45,000 zeros after it. Okay. Wait a minute. The right reproductive cells in every generation for 150,000 generations have to meet up. So all of that adds up to you being here. You have a 1 in 10 to the 2,685,000th power. That's 10 with 2,685,000 zeros after it. The number of atoms in my body, atoms, not cells, atoms are about 10 to the 27th power. 27, 27. The number of atoms in the earth, about 10 to the 50th. The number of atoms in the universe are about 10 to the 80th power. The odds of you being here are 1 in 10 to the 2,685,000th power. Think of it like this. 2 million people are all playing a dice game. It's roughly the population of San Diego. Okay. Each of them has a dice. The dice has a trillion sides on it. All 2 million people roll the dice at the same time. And they all come up with the same number. Nobody here is an accident. Each person is so beautiful and remarkable and unlikely. We are the image of God. And to be rooted in God's love is simply this, to love other people. Thank you so much for your attention this morning. I truly appreciate it, and I pray that we have a blessed rest of the day.
God bless you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the St. Patrick Catholic Community Homily Podcast. We are Christian Disciples in Mission, 